All right, I get to introduce our guest speaker today. Uh, it's Kevin Perales. Most of you know Kevin because he's spoken several times. Uh, for those of you who are visiting today, I want to tell you that this is a kind of a church where we really encourage the family, the body, to be stepping up. And so we have people from the body preaching on a very regular basis, and they bring incredibly important words, which is exactly what's happening today. Uh, Kevin is a Life Bible graduate. Uh, that's the Foursquare Denominational School. He is a, he's served in full-time ministry. It is my belief that he'll probably end up back in full-time ministry. I don't know if that strikes fear in your heart or not, but I don't think so. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, is that Kevin always brings an interesting uh, uh, viewpoint on things. And I love that. I love being able to look at the Word and what's going on and things in a slightly different way. And let me just say this. This is why I, I don't want to sort of spend all my time um, saying really nice things about him is I want to just show you again how the Lord's working. We've been talking about this thing, about something changing in the culture and about God doing a new thing in our world and about it starting with the church and being difficult. Just today in this time, the word about fear came up. We were able to do some ministry on that. Again, this is to me the Lord leading a church, a family, a body, as he equips them. And that's what's happening with this sermon because I felt like Kevin was supposed to preach and he's going to tell you a deeper version of this story in just one second, so let me not steal that. But let me tell you that after some going back and forth on it, he said, he said well, you know, you did, and this is what I feel like the Lord gave me. And we've been working on this, I think, now for weeks. And I just went, this is the capstone. I literally had never seen in all the stuff we've been talking about, and I really should have, but it's so obvious, and yet it's so important, and it's so true, that I just went, God, thank you that you are speaking through the body, that the family is where you're bringing the message out of, that all of us together actually get to where you want us to be, because I really don't think, I, I think I would have moved on and gone to something else. But I really think that God is just bringing a great capstone to what he's been saying. So would you please welcome Kevin Prellis. I'm so used to this now. When people describe me, they're like, Kevin, he's so interesting. Oh, Kevin, he's creative. It's the nicest thing people can say, and that's okay. So uh, I'm going to drink some water. One sec. I feel much better. I feel good now. So as Kurt mentioned, uh, a while ago, God spoke to me about a sermon, and I was really excited for this sermon. And, and a lot of sermons that I've preached here have been me talking about something that I'm good at. Like the last sermon I preached on was worship. You might disagree with me, but I feel like I'm pretty good at worship. I understand that. Like I've had theological training on it, so I kind of understand it in a, in a way that I had something to offer, right? And or I, I have gone through something, I've experienced something, and so now I get to share with you my wisdom. And so I had this sermon that was so good. And it, it, if I was preaching that sermon today, you'd walk away like, that was amazing. And I, I'm not being facetious, I sincerely mean that. Like, God spoke and it was really cool. So when Kurt came up to me and asked me, hey, Kev, do you have a sermon? I went, of course I do. God's been speaking to me and listen to this, this is so cool. And he, he heard what I had to say and he was like, well, that's good. It's interesting. 
And he said, you know what, here's what we're going to do. You're, you're on for this Sunday, but go back to the Lord and pray and see if that's the sermon for this Sunday. And if it is, great, but I wonder if the Lord has something else for us. Which, uh, for a lot of people, would be a nice way of saying, that was terrible. Pray again. But Kurt was actually sincerely saying, like, no, that was good. I just, I wonder if there's something else. So I went back to the Lord and said, okay, I had this sermon. It's great. You gave it to me. It's awesome. What do you have for this Sunday? And God led me to a passage of scripture that I'm, I'm pretty familiar with. I studied it in college. I looked up the Greek words. I can, I can tell you exactly what it means and what it meant to the original audience. But he showed it to me in a way that blew my mind. He showed me something that I've never seen before in this particular passage. And it was so interesting because it happens to correspond, as Kurt was saying, with what we've been talking about here at Lake Sam. Like, Kurt's been talking uh, for the last couple months about how we as a culture have been shifting away from what God has for us, and that God has been protecting us from the consequences of our actions, right? This is familiar. No one here is shocked by that. And, and a time has come, and a time is coming where God continues to let go and allow us to feel the consequences. And isn't it pretty obvious now that the culture that we're living in now is not a Christian culture, right? I see a lot of people nodding their heads. Regardless of, of what, what should be, right now, today's world, it's not. And if you've been on the internet lately, you know it's a scary place, right? Like, if you have a dissenting opinion on the internet, it's really not good for you. And you don't even have to have a dissenting opinion. If you, if you have any strong opinion, the internet is very dangerous for you. Like, have you, have you heard this new, not a new thing, it's an old thing that has come back, public shaming is now a thing again, where you say something on the internet and people find out uh, where you live and they find out your people, your community, and they publicly shame you. And it actually affects people's lives, not just on the internet, but people are losing their jobs. People are losing their relationships. Marriages are crumbling because of public shaming on the internet because you had an opinion and you shared it in a public space. That's really scary. Or have you seen, there are people who will live stream themselves and if someone finds their address, a, a funny thing that people do is they'll call the SWAT team on that person and so while they're doing their thing live stream, all of a sudden a SWAT team comes in and takes that person down because someone anonymously called in a tip that they have drugs or kidnapping someone. That's really scary. You don't want to be just hanging out doing your thing and all of a sudden a SWAT team comes in accusing you of kidnapping, right? That's not okay. That's super scary. And that is not a Christian culture. That's just how it is. And so while we could choose, we could look at the situation and we could choose fear because it's super scary, and that would be a totally natural, reasonable thing to do is, is choose fear. But for me, I actually get kind of excited, and that's super weird. But I get excited because we are now living in a place where we who are Christian is becoming super obvious, and there's such a huge gap that it'll be really easy to figure out who's following God and who's not. Like, it's becoming super easy to be like, that's a God idea, that not so much a God idea. I will, I will pursue this and not pursue that, right? It's pretty simple. And uh, 
where, where we're going in, in this passage of scripture kind of explains what we're to do uh, and how we interact in this world. See, in, in music, if you're recording music, uh, you spend thousands of dollars on good quality microphones, good quality equipment. You spend hours and hours of, of practicing because you want the perfect song. And, and you get all this equipment and all these good, talented people, and you record the perfect thing. And you want this crystal clear, pure sound, nothing interfering, nothing interrupting the sound. And then after you have all of these instruments recorded, you hire a, a person who's going to take it and make it awesome. And you, you want the bass to be up, but not too far. You want all the voices to be blended, but still to where you can hear them individually. You want it to be pleasing to the ear and to where all of the spectrum of sound is covered. And so once you have this perfect, flawless, high-quality sound, and you're ready to ship it, you're ready to put it on a CD, you're ready to put it to the iTunes store, you're ready to go, you do this weird thing called dithering. And if you're in music or in photography, you know that what dithering is, is you now have this perfect thing, but when you reduce this perfect thing down to a CD quality, when you reduce it to, uh, I'm going to listen to this in my car with terrible speakers, you lose a lot of the, the sound, the distinction in sound, so you dither it so that way at the lower quality, the important stuff comes out. So dithering is literally taking noise and adding noise to this perfect, flawless, beautiful thing that you've done that you've spent thousands of dollars making sure there is no noise. You add the noise back in so at a low quality, it still it, uh, maintains its essence. And if you're not a musician, a lot of that's confusing, so I actually have a slide to illustrate this, because photography does the same thing. So I have here a bird of some kind, maybe. I originally was saying a duck. It clearly is not a duck. It could be a seagull. All of you spoke at once. I have no idea what you said. A poppin? A puffin. A puffin. Thank you. Mystery solved. So you know that this is a puffin, and now I do too. <laughs> so you can clearly see what this is, and you can see it has a beak and it has eyes, and even though I've taken a small image and blown it up on the screen, you can still clearly see what it is, right? This is using about four million different shades of gray. So because we have that many shades, we can distinguish really easily what it is. So if we were to take this picture and reduce it down so we're only using four shades of gray, it looks something like this. Yeah. <laughs> Not so great. You can, could you now tell me what this is? Not a puffin, is it? It's a bird of some kind. <laughs> Maybe a duck. Who knows? Uh, you can still sort of see that it has a beak. You can sort of see it has eyes. But you can see like the background kind of blended into the, the side of its face. It kind of has something floating off in the distance there. It's a little weird. So if you take that same image and you dither it, so you're adding noise to that image before you reduce it down, this is what it looks like after you've dithered it. So it's still not great because you only get four shades of gray to work with, and that's not much to be able to tell distinctions, but you can at least tell better, like, oh, that now looks like some sort of bird. It looks more like a puffin. Puffin? <laughs> Nailed it. Um, you can now see it kind of looks, looks a little better. So that's why we dither it, because when you add noise to it at its lowest quality, you can still kind of see what it is. And it, it feels like we as the church have been dithering ourselves for a long time. 
We've been taking this perfect, beautiful, awesome image, and we add noise to it because we're afraid of what's going to happen at the lowest quality. We're afraid that if we really boil it down at our essence, we're not gonna, people aren't going to be able to tell, so we add noise. We try and be relevant. And there, I, I believe that a time is coming when we're not going to have four million shades of gray morality anymore. We're only going to have black, white, and maybe a shade of gray. And it's going to be super obvious, and so we as a church are going to have to decide, will we continue to add noise to our lives? Will we continue to dither our lives away? Or we, will we be solid? And so the scripture we're going to look at is going to help us with that. Um, but before we do that, we're going to pray. We have Roger Maddox praying for us, who is over there, already with a mic. Awesome. Uh, so Roger, go ahead and pray for me, please, that I would speak exactly what God has for us, because uh, I think this sermon is going to be really important for us, and also lift up another church. Lord God, we just thank you. Uh, thank you for speaking to us, Lord, in different ways for different people, God. I just thank you for Kevin uh, and for the message that you've given him, God, and, and then this new message, God. Uh, the message he was excited about, the message that you've given him for this weekend, Lord God. I just pray that you would open our ears to hear your voice, that you would speak to each one of us uniquely, and that we would hear what it is that you have to say to us. And I and, uh, just want to pray for Centerpoint down in uh, Marietta. I just pray, God, that uh, you would bless that church, that you would continue to grow it, reach out into their community to share the love of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is not a church that brings Bibles. That's okay because I have it on the screen. We have one Bible. Excellent. Um, so when, I, when God led me to 1 Peter, I, I had in mind my old sermon. I was like, this doesn't have anything to do with what I want to preach about. And then when God spoke to me, I was like, oh, this is so much better for us right now. And I was really excited because God was speaking to me about, like, how do we engage in this culture? And the NIV talks about this passage of scripture that we're going to look at, and it's like, how to live for God in a pagan society. And I was like, this is awesome, because it's Peter talking, guys. Peter's so cool. This is Peter who, like, when people were coming to arrest Jesus, he was like, oh, guys, I got this. Pulls out a sword and chops off the high priest's ear. Like, that's awesome. I'm so excited to hear Peter's advice. We get swords. Woohoo! And before I was reading this, I was like, okay, before I read what Peter has to say, what's my plan? And what do I think Peter might say if you're going to engage with us in 2015 about how to engage with our culture? And I have it figured out. So first, we're going to take science. Because uh, anyone who is an intellectual is involved in science, and science and faith are not incompatible. So if we just figure that out, I think it'll help us. Then we're going to take philosophy. Because philosophy is awesome. I love philosophy. And philosophy is that deeper level that everything has a philosophy of. So you can't talk about science without talking about the philosophy of science. And once we figure that out, we'll figure out how to have an argument and argue in a way where uh, we can be right. Because we're right. Sorry. That's how it is. And then once we get that figured out, we'll start conquering social media. Because once we get social media, we can share what we've learned about philosophy and science. And then the final step in my big plan is Hollywood. Because once we get Hollywood, once we have Christian movies that are actually good, and once we have <laughs> biblical movies that actually are what the Bible shared, that'll be it. That'll be great. And so the result, here's my plan up on the screen. Everyone will get saved. It's a pretty good plan, right? 
I think we can just go home after that. That's, there you go. Dropped a knowledge bomb on you. But here's what Peter has to say. Remember, this is Peter who chopped off ears. <laughs> I, hope he should, I hope that was his reputation. Hey, this, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Peter who chopped off ears. <laughs> I don't know why that amuses me so. Uh, so starting in verse 11, here's First Peter. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed in Peter in the, for sharing this because this is not my plan at all. He essentially... I'm taking a very active stance. Like, I want to conquer science. I want to conquer philosophy, conquer social media, conquer Hollywood. And Peter's advice at first glance seems very passive to me. It's not conquering. It's not attacking. It's not aggressive. It's like abstain, which that verb in its nature is very, it's not do something, it's don't do something. And He's, first, he, he calls us this weird thing. He calls us exiles and foreigners as if to remind us, remember that this world you live in is not your home. These are not your people. You're not here to stay. You're a foreigner here. And here's how a foreigner ought to live in this place, in this culture. Don't sin. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. And you might ask yourself, Peter, why would I do that? Besides the obvious, that's great, but how does that help me engage in culture? And he responds with, well, live such good lives that although people would accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. So essentially, if you take Peter's plan and cross my name off, it's abstain from sinful desires and live good lives. And the result is people who will accuse you of doing wrong will one day glorify God. Okay, I mean, that's... that's that's good, I guess. I, it is really cool in the sense of like, there, you have this guy or this girl in your life that you're a Christian, they know you're a Christian, so they kind of give you a hard time for it. Does everyone have someone like that in your life? Uh, those people are really annoying. <laughs> and I would like for them to stop giving me a hard time for being a Christian. So this is suggesting that if I would abstain from sinful desires and live a good life, that person eventually, someday, will be glorifying God. And it's a kind of fun irony of like, they were making fun of me for being a Christian, but someday God will touch their life because of my good deeds. You know, when I say it like that, it's pretty cool. But fortunately, Peter's not done. He continues, and he raises it up another level. And you'll be able to see as we get through 1 Peter that there's an argument that he's making that he hasn't quite hit yet. But it's, it's going to be pretty amazing when we get there. So here's where Peter continues. He says, Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So that last verse, the verbs are show respect, love, fear, honor. Personally, I noticed a severe lack of be sarcastic. 
post funny clips to YouTube. Like, there's some, there's some verbiage missing that we could add, I think, right? But that's not where Peter goes with this. And Peter actually says something that, for a lot of people here, is very troubling. Submit to the emperor. A lot of us here are like, I don't want to do that. We don't have an emperor here in the U.S. We have a president. And according to 1 Peter here, what Peter's trying to say is you are to submit to that president because that president has been sent by God. And the last president, he was sent by God. And the one before that, sent by God. And the next one coming up, whether you vote for him or her or not, sent by God. And so our job, our, our responsibility is to give them respect and honor and to submit to them. Ugh. It means that while other people can go onto Facebook and post terrible things about what the president is doing, we as Christians don't get to do that. We're called to a different standard here. It means that uh, other people can say, I don't agree with him, so I hate him. We don't get that option. Other people get to say, he's doing bad things, so I'm not going to obey. We don't get that option, guys. Sorry. And it is entirely possible that this president is called from God to bring judgment on us. That's a thing. Sorry. That's, that could be a possibility. I'm not saying it is or it's not. And if you ask me afterwards, I will still say, I don't know if it is or it's not. But that's not our responsibility. That's, we don't get to figure that out. Our job is to obey. Keeping in mind that Jesus interacted with people. He had dialogues with people. He told people that were doing wrong things, hey, you're doing wrong things and you should stop doing wrong things. We had, he had conversations with people. But the only people that he really like tore them down at the base level and like, you think you're awesome, here's how terrible you are. Religious people. It's the only people that Jesus really picked on. Everyone else, he had these like loving conversations and he'd call sin, sin, and he'd call wrong, wrong. But he, he never had that disrespect for people. He never had that vitriol that if you go on any kind of internet thing about politics, is there. And some of you may be here going, okay, Kevin, but you don't understand, our president has done some terrible stuff. He's said some bad things. He's passed some policies that I don't agree with that God couldn't surely agree with. And I'm not, again, I'm not going to make a statement on any policy and whether it's right or wrong, but I do want to remind you who the emperor was when Peter was writing this letter. Does anyone know? Nero. Do you know who Nero is? Nero was a terrible person. So when Nero was emperor, he, th there was a fire in Rome, huge fire, burned Rome to the ground. They rebuilt Rome, and they were looking for someone to blame. And Nero was like, well, I can't take the fall for this. I, it wasn't me, so I got to find someone to blame. I know. I will, I will take this small little religious sect, the Christians. I'll blame them. I'll say they started the fire. And then we can go around and persecute them. Now we have an enemy. It'll, it'll unite Rome. So Nero started persecuting Christians and, and started taking persecution to the next level. Like, it wasn't just enough to, like, throw you into a lion's den. Like, that's, that's old school, man. That's boring. You got you to gotta tie them up first. 
so they can't fight back. I mean, yeah, we could light them on fire. That's, uh, I mean, that's old school. We got we to gotta keep them alive and then light them on fire. Yeah, that's interesting. So Nero actually had a reputation where uh, people would, he had these gardens, and he would hang Christians uh, along the way in the garden, and at night he would light them on fire and burn them alive. And he would say, I have lit Nero's gardens with Christians. And people would sit back and admire the quote-unquote beauty of the situation. That's Nero. It's the worst persecution up till this point that the church had ever faced. And Peter here is saying, yeah, that emperor who lights people on fire for being a Christian, submit to him. I don't know if we have an excuse. I don't know if we get to opt out of this one, guys. I think Peter's being serious. So he continues. And here he takes it to 11, in my opinion. Um, there's a good chance that the people in this room will not be interacting with the president directly, maybe on Twitter. But there's a good chance that we live our lives kind of here in this area. But Peter has something for us in our lives. And I want to preface this too. The next thing he's talking about is about slaves. And we in the U.S. don't really get this. For us, slavery is something that happened or something that happens over there. But so I'm, I'm going to contextualize this, but know that I am a good theologian and I know that what we experience is not anything what Peter has in mind when he talks about slavery. So when I take this and apply this to our lives, it's not the original meaning of the text, but I think it still has a meaning for us. But I just want to contextualize, but I also want to recognize that I'm not going to compare our lives to what slaves had to deal with in Rome in the first century. Fair? So here's what he says. Slaves. In reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps because he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So you see how this argument is being formed? How do we engage in a Christian culture? Well, you stop sinning. Well, it's kind of more than that. It's kind of you live your life in a way that people would glorify God. Well, but it's kind of more than that. It's submitting to the supreme authority. It's submitting to your emperor, even when they would be bad and they'd torture you. And then, but it's actually a little bit deeper than that, isn't it? Slaves, you have to be in fear of, in reverent fear of God, you have to submit yourselves to your masters. And again, we're not slaves, we're all free, but the closest parallel we have to this, I think, is our jobs-ish. Again, I know that we're not slaves. I know that the worst day of my job is better than the, the best day of, in the life of a slave, but that's sort of the closest parallel we have. And so if, if that were what this text were about, it, as, a, as a worker, I have to submit to my boss and their boss, and not only the good ones, but also the mean ones, also the harsh ones, also the ones who make me stay late, also the ones who disregard what I say, also the ones who talk bad about me behind my back, also the ones that are trying to get me fired. Those are the people that we are to submit ourselves to. 
And the, I left out a text here, it, right in the middle, it talks about if you are punished because you do something wrong, you deserve it. Like, if you steal or you lie or you do something bad and you get punished for it, you can't be like, God, I'm being oppressed. No, you're being punished because you're dumb and you did something bad. <laughs> you deserve to be punished. But if you're doing good, if you're, if you're following after God and you get punished for it and you suffer, that's commendable before God. But I don't understand why that is true. Why would God call me to suffer? Why are we talking about suffering? I asked, how do we engage in culture? And Peter's talking about suffering. I don't get it. Why would he tell me that? And then he talks, he, he does this thing, he kind of twists. If you read Peter, First and Second Peter, he goes on these like rabbit trails where he kind of like, he's talking about this thing and he's talking about this other thing and just like you were baptized, just like Noah was baptized, just in the ark. And surprise, we're back where we started. And so we're kind of like on this tangent. He's like, oh, and by the way, Christ suffered too. And so he's an example for you in how to suffer. And when I, when I first read that, I was like, oh, it, now I get it. It makes sense. Because I think of Jesus as dying on the cross for my sins. He did this. He suffered. He, he was tortured. He died. So now I don't have to. I get to be blessed. I get to have a great life. I'm following Jesus, so now cool things happen to me. That's what following Jesus is like, right? According to this, it's not just that Christ died for you, because that's true. And we can't let go of that. Christ died so that we can have life. But he died as an example to us that we are to follow him. And following Jesus, yes, it means following him into blessings and following him into good things, but it also means following him to suffer. And Peter does a really cool creative thing here. He quotes this, the very bottom verse that says he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. That's not an original idea. That's from the book of Isaiah, which is my favorite Old Testament book. I love Isaiah. Um, and Peter's quoting this to a group of people who would say like, oh, yeah, I know. He's, he doesn't have to reference. He's like, oh, that's Isaiah 53. Obviously. Everyone here knows, right? Isaiah 53, right? Yeah, that's kidding. You don't have to know that. Um, we're not Jewish people who study the Old Testament. But if you did, you would know, oh, Isaiah 53. I know exactly what he's talking about. But since we don't, let's go to it. So this is Isaiah 53 that he's quoting. This is what theologians have called one of the suffering servant passages of Isaiah, where Isaiah's like preaching and he's doing this thing, and then it almost seemingly randomly is like, oh, and by the way, here's what a servant of God looks like. And then he goes into this thing, and then he continues with this prophecy, and then he needs another thing. And, and so he's doing this, he's, he's preaching to these people, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, and by the way, here's, here's what it means to be a servant. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or, or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence for the third time in this passage, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will, whoops, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the fruit of his suffering and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. One more verse. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So we read that and most people in this room have Christian brain. So you read that, and you, in, within the first couple verses, you're like, oh, oh, Jesus, got it. And the whole rest of the passage, you're like, okay, yeah, we're talking about Jesus. Yep, Jesus died. Yep, Jesus died. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no sin. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, he was buried in a grave with wicked. Yeah, okay. Jesus, perfect. We got it. Next. And yes, that is talking about Jesus. Very shortly after this was penned, scholars uh, and rabbis were like, this is clearly talking about something messianic, meaning a future Messiah that's yet to come. But Isaiah wasn't preaching this primarily to say, hey, by the way, in, a, in four to 500 years, a Messiah's coming, and this is what it's gonna be like. So you tell your great, 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 great grandkids about this, and they'll be impressed. That's not why Isaiah's preaching this. And that's not what his original audience what the Israelites took from this. See, the Israelites were hearing this at a time where they were saying, I'm following after God the best I can. I'm a servant of the Lord. And quite frankly, he's not holding up his end of the deal. What's going on here? I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm following him. And so anyone who's opposing me is opposing God. And Isaiah is going, and God is saying through Isaiah, you think you're a servant of the Lord. You think you're following after God. Let me tell you what a servant of the Lord looks like. Let me tell you what it means to follow after God. And then he preaches these verses. And the Israelite that's hearing that is forced to say, I think I'm a servant of the Lord, but what he's describing is not my life. What he's describing as a follower of God doesn't describe me at all. And it should. And so to us this morning, when we hear these words, we should be saying to ourselves, does that describe me? Why not? It should. And in these words, something is revealed, and it seems to be the reason why Peter drew us here to Isaiah. See, because it still has the question, what's the point? I don't want to suffer. Do you want to suffer? Doesn't sound fun. Why would we suffer? And he's saying, no, 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 no. Remember how Jesus suffered and what came out of that? See, there's a reason for suffering. You guys remember a couple months ago, 
Kurt was preaching a sermon, and he used this, this metaphor of people in a boat heading for a waterfall. And if you don't remember, the idea is a group of people in a boat, you're in a boat with a bunch of people that you love, that you care about, and you're on a river, you're headed down, uh, and you get off the boat onto dry land. You look ahead and you say, oh, that boat's not going in a good direction. It's headed for a waterfall, and there are rocks. I'm at a high enough vantage point that I can see there are rocks at the bottom of this waterfall. The people in that boat are headed for destruction. And so the person, because you love the people in the boat, you turn to the people in the boat and you say, guys, the thing you're doing is wrong. The thing you're doing is not good for you. I know it seems fun. Whitewater rafting is awesome. But this is not going to end well for you. It's headed for destruction. You have to get out of the boat. And what do people say when you're having fun on the water and people on land say you can't do it? They're like, yeah, right. Come on, man. We're having fun. Leave me alone. This is awesome. You're just jealous that you got out of the boat. You're just jealous that you can't have the fun that I'm having right now. You're just jealous because I'm living a life that you wish you could live. Yeah, that's right. And so you on land are saying, no, I love you. I'm telling you, you're headed for destruction, and they just won't listen to you. But you're a follower of God. So you make a decision in that moment. You say, Lord, I love them. I want to help them. Here I am on dry land. They aren't listening to me. And God would say, yeah, they're not listening to me either. (laughs) But do you love them enough for me to use you? And if you would say yes, he'd say, okay. But do you love them enough to accept whatever happens if I use you? And if you say yes, God does something. He takes you up off the land and puts you in the boat with them again. But now they don't think of you as friends. Now they don't think of you as someone who cares about them and loves them. You're the guy or the girl who is sitting on the edge criticizing their life. And so they're not too thrilled that you're, back, you're stuck in the boat with them. So they're going to attack you. And they're going to beat you. And they're going to ridicule you. And you will suffer. All the while the boat is headed for destruction. And because you're a follower of God, you're going to cry out to the Lord again. And you have two options that you can say in that moment. You could say, God, they're not listening. Fine, judge them. I'm done. I tried to speak to them. They beat me. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. Take me out of this suffering. Please end this suffering. And you're a child of God, and God cares about his children, and he will answer that prayer, and he will take you out of your suffering, and they will fall to their death. Or you could choose in that moment to say the same thing that Jesus said of the people that were persecuting him. The same people that the same thing that Stephen said in the book of Acts. The same thing that almost all of the disciples said in one version or another and that's God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't judge them. And you're a child of God. And when God's children cry out to him when they're suffering, God answers them. And God doesn't judge them. And in fact, your suffering has done something. It's put God in a situation that he couldn't have gone before. You see, suffering, it turns out, is intercession. Suffering is the thing that lets God go to places that he couldn't previously go. 
it allows God to circumvent circumstances and move in a way that he couldn't do before. So in philosophy, there's this idea that I love called the circle of belief. And the circle of belief looks something like this. It's a series of concentric circles. And in the middle, this is uh, going to be different for every I- individual, but in the middle of the circle is things that I will always believe. The things that if God himself came here and said, that's not true, you'd be like, you're wrong. Like, I exist. No matter what you tell me, you cannot prove to me that I don't exist. And even if intellectually you're like, well, that kind of makes sense, maybe I don't exist. You can't not believe you exist, right? Or, or things like, I love my family. Even when they prove to me that I shouldn't love them. Even when other people try and convince me that, that my family is terrible. My fa- I'm not talking about me, my family's great. But... <laughs> I wanted to preface that in case my family's watching this. Um, but no matter what people say, you're not going to be convinced that you don't love your family, right? So these are, these are things that no matter what, you believe them, no one will convince you otherwise. Philosophically, it's pointless to argue with these things because you're going to believe them regardless. So, and a lot of people, by the way, put Christianity here, and I don't, I don't think it belongs here um, because if you're at that, no matter what people say, I will not be convinced otherwise, it does weird things to you. Like, we, we have to be able to take truth and, and kind of interpret our worldview through truth, even if it doesn't agree with what I, what I think. So that's what I personally believe. For you, God's in this circle, great. Um, the other thing, the next circle out, is things that I believe, but I could be convinced otherwise. Yeah, like, like traffic laws, right? Like, I believe in driving on the right side of the road, I believe in stopping at red lights, but if someone came along with like a good reason for us not to stop at red lights, I could be convinced. Maybe. <laughs> or for a lot of people, hopefully, political views are here. Like I be- I'm this political party affiliation, or I don't like politics, or I am hardcore about this politician or whatever, but I could be convinced, hopefully. I'm open-minded enough that I could be wrong and my views could change. Or, or like, this person is, like, I have a, my best friend is named Justin. Justin's my best friend, and I believe that. If you came to me and like, oh yeah, by the way, Justin says terrible things to you behind your back, and oh, actually, he's just been lying to you this whole time, and oh, he's not, his name is actually Sam. What? <laughs> um, that could convince me not to be his best friend. Not the name thing, but all the rest of it. Um, like, these are things that we believe but, but someone could convince us that they're not true, and we could believe other things. The next step out, the, the next circle out, are things that I don't believe, but I could be convinced. For a lot of people, global warming is here. Again, I'm not going to make a stance on it, just some people believe that it's not true, but if you showed me evidence, I'd believe it. For other people, it's the next level in. It's, I believe that it's true, but if you provided me evidence that it's not true, I'm willing to reconsider and believe it. But these, these are things that I don't believe, but if you, if you prove to me that they, did, they were real, I would believe them. And for non-Christians, a lot of non-Christians, God is here. I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Christianity, but if you convinced me, I would believe. And so when we talk about like sharing our faith with the world, uh, the, we're really trying to reach the people where God is in that category, right? Like, it's not that you believe it, but can be convinced not to. It's that you don't believe, and I can convince you otherwise. And then there's 
outside the circle. And these are things that I will never believe no matter what. And the uh, shining example of this, of course, is Santa Claus. Let's have a little Christmas in July, shall we? Santa provides an interesting case study for us philosophically. That's a sentence I didn't think I would say. So when you're a kid, when you're a toddler, young kid, you don't question the idea of Santa, right? He's in the blue. He's in the middle of the circle. He's something that you believe, I'm always going to believe in Santa. And your friends don't really talk very well. But if they could, they could not convince you that Santa was not real. But then you get a little older and you go, you know, it's kind of strange that Santa and Dad like the same cookies. <laughs> and isn't it weird how Santa goes to all the houses on the same day? And it's a little weird that I always get from Santa what I tell my parents I want. Oh, whatever. I still believe in Santa. And maybe you have a moment of doubt. But then you see him at the mall. And you're like, there he is. Okay, I'm in. Santa's real. And then as there's a moment in your life, and if, you, if there are any kids here, cover your ears. <laughs> I'm about to shatter worldviews. But there comes a moment where you go, where you, you, like, you accidentally pull down the beard, and you're like, oh no! This thing I believed this whole time is a lie. Santa's not real. And you become depressed. You start eating ice cream just straight out of the can. Carton, thank you. And you, you're angry at your parents for lying to you about it. And you stop writing letters to Santa. It's devastating. Your worldview is shattered. And from that moment on, no matter what people say, you're never going to believe in Santa again. And that's where most of us find ourselves, right? Even if, like, reindeer tracks were on your yard and, like, there was a sleigh prince leading up to your chimney and, like, presents in your house that you didn't buy, you'd be like, well, that's weird, but it's not Santa, right? Like, that's crazy. If someone believed it was Santa, that would be crazy talk. There's no way anyone could convince me otherwise. So how we feel about Santa right now, as we appropriately should, by the way, <laughs> is how a lot of people feel about God. How the things that we were just saying, like, even, even if evidence was provided, even if there are presents in my house that I didn't buy, that's weird, but I would find a way to, to explain that away because I cannot believe that Santa's real. In that same way, people would say, doesn't matter what you say, argue away, but I will not believe in God. And for you to talk about believing in God, you must not be as intellectual as I thought you were because how could a sane, rational person believe in God? Right? And that's where people are. That's where culture is going. Culture, for a lot of people, culture's already there. A lot of people don't believe in God and would never believe in God because that's crazy talk. But here's the thing. God doesn't care if people will never believe in God. God can do stuff. God can move. And God has the ability to open hearts. God has the ability to change the situation. And one of the ways that God wants to change that situation is by using you and me. And unfortunately, that means there's going to be suffering because suffering does something to people. When you watch someone suffer and they have no regard for themselves, 
but they, all they care about is you. It messes with you. It shocks you. It does something that you, you can't explain. Like, that doesn't make sense. That is stupid. They're suffering. They should stop suffering. And it, it forces people, to coll- it collides your worldview with theirs. And it forces God to go from outside the circle. Now it's in the circle. And, and maybe it's on that out, outer ring and they watch you suffer. And because you're suffering, but, but not just because you're suffering, but the way you're suffering, it does something to them. And now they, they go, I can't really explain it, but I sort of believe in God because of, of how that person's living their life. It's that idea that if you have a, uh, friends who don't believe in God, and, and people have described me this way to my face before, where they're like, I think what you believe is kind of crazy. I don't believe in Christianity, I don't believe in God, but if I did, the way that you do it, I think is right. Or, or people have, have, I've had Christian friends and non-Christian friends, and my Christian, non-Christian friends will come to me and say like, yeah, that person's kind of, they believe weird things. I don't agree with their perspective, but they're good people. Like, don't mess with them. Don't say mean things about that person. Because even though their worldview is different than mine, they're good people. And that's what God's calling us to. And that's why we're to submit to our authorities. And that's why we're to suffer like Christ suffered. And so I want to end by going back to Isaiah. And I, but I want to change it. Instead of us putting that in the Jesus category... I want, it to, I want it to apply to us. And so I've, I've written it out again, but I changed the pronouns. So instead of he and him, it's I and me. And there's a, a moment where it says man. I change it to man or woman. You know, it's all of us. Um, so I want to read Isaiah 53. And, and as I'm reading this, there's a decision we have to make, right? Here we are in the boat. Are we going to say, God, judge them. I'm done. Or are we going to say, God, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I'll be the suffering servant. Yeah, I'll allow these words to describe me. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. Now it's about me. There's nothing beautiful or majestic about my appearance, nothing to attract them to me. I was despised and rejected, a man or woman of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. They turned their backs on me and looked the other way. I was despised and they did not care. Surely I took up their pain and bore their suffering. Yet they considered me punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But I was pierced for their transgressions. I was crushed for their iniquities. The punishment that brought them peace was on me, and by my wounds they are healed. They all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of them has turned to their own way. But the Lord has laid on me the iniquity of them all. I was oppressed and afflicted, yet I did not open my mouth. Or maybe I will not open my mouth. I was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so I did not open my mouth. By oppression and judgment I was taken away, yet who of my generation protested? For I was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people I was punished. 
I was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in my death, though I had done no violence, nor was any deceit in my mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush me and cause me to suffer. And though the Lord makes my life an offering for sin, I will see my offspring and prolong my days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in my hand. After I have suffered, I will see the fruit of my suffering and be satisfied. By my knowledge, God's righteous servant will justify many, and I will bear their iniquities. Therefore, God will give me a portion among the great, and I will divide the spoils with the strong, because I poured my life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For I bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I think that's what Paul meant when he said we get to complete the work that Christ began. We get to join with Christ in suffering so that others might come to know him. Let's pray. God, thank you that you're with us. Thank you that your son died so we might have life. And thank you for showing us how to interact with culture. This is not easy. I'm not particularly looking forward to suffering, but I'm in. I'm willing to suffer because I know that you have a plan. I'm willing to be a part of what you're doing. And so God, all of us here this morning say, use me, I'm open. Whatever you have for me, whether it's to be prosperous, whether it's to suffer, whether it's to, either way, I'm in the boat. I'll be used by you. We thank you. We trust you. We trust you to work this situation out. We trust you with our emperor. We will submit and trust you to work the rest out. We'll trust you with our jobs. We'll submit and trust you to work it out. In all of our relationships, we will submit and trust you to work it out. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Thank you. Thank you. I, I heard that uh, on Wednesday, and I have to say it. Uh, I think I've always been incredibly careful and I, mean, I don't mean for public reasons. I'm not one thing privately and one thing publicly. So I mean I've been very careful, even in my own heart, to be respectful and to be honoring and to understand that I had a responsibility to pray for the president, whether I agree with him or not. And, and nothing that Kevin's saying is saying that we don't, have the, we don't have the right to speak. He's saying, what spirit are we speaking in? And will people hear the Lord in how we speak. And I have to say, I think in a lot of stuff I've posted and stuff like that, that's one of the things that people will say is, I feel like, though I don't agree with you, I feel like you respected me and I feel like you did that. But I have to tell you, when I heard it to the depths that you just talked about it, it, it made me think I'm not living the light that Christ would have me live. It made me think that there was a whole nother level. I, I, I stand in, on Facebook and publicly in sermons and in coffee talks and so on. I stand in a certain position with my rights. And though I'm careful about that, I feel like what he asked me to do was is to take on 
his heart. And to just live that. And any time that my rights or my desire, my as a citizen or whatever, conflict with that, to put that on the altar in my own heart so that I would live this. I just am so struck by the idea that when we come as lambs, sure we're wise, but when we come as lambs, he may actually sacrifice us <laughs> to save somebody. That my unusual response to what's happening to me, to not protect myself, but to continue to value the other person would be the thing that would cause them to see God differently, to see life, to, to go, I love that word when you said it shocks them. Because that's the one thing they can't explain. They can explain somebody defending themselves. They can explain somebody explaining themselves. What they can't understand is somebody in the midst of outrageous persecution giving themselves. Reach down and grab that cup. 